Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I'm a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bienvenue. We've come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. This is our 10th podcast, and the first where we have an invited guest. We are delighted to welcome Nina Ellis from the University of Cambridge, where she's writing a critical biography of Lucia Berlin, the short story writer we are discussing in this episode. And in fact, I think you've signed a contract for your book, haven't you? What's the title? Yes, I have indeed. It's such an honour to be your first guest. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm writing a mainstream trade biography of Lucia Berlin called Looking for Lucia, which will be published by Farah Strauss and Giroux in 2025. Eagerly awaited by Berlin fans everywhere, I think. I would love it if you could tell us a little more about your book and what attracted you to research Lucia Berlin in the first place. With great pleasure. From the beginning, I was drawn to Berlin because of her geographical transience. I'm a peripatetic person too, and I really love how she captures that experience in her fiction. I also think she's clearly an exceptional writer who did remarkable, innovative things with the short story form, and who is so long overdue for a biography. Because she only started publishing in earnest in her 40s, critics often group her with Carver and the dirty realists of the 1980s. But that's not correct, because she actually emerged from the American counterculture of the 1950s and 60s. And studying her work gives us this whole new perspective on those movements and on what it meant to be a female writer affiliated with the Beats, the Black Mountain School, the Bay Area publishing renaissance, and so forth. Berlin was born in 1936 and she died in 2004. She'd lived in the United States, Mexico and Chile. Um, her son Mark, her eldest son Mark, once estimated that she moved on average every nine months. She was born Lucia and initially her name was actually pronounced Lucia when she was a child. So she was born Lucia Barbara Brown in Alaska and moved around the US for her father's job as a mining engineer, living um, in her childhood in various mining camps across Idaho, Kentucky and Montana. She spent World War II with her mother's family in Texas before moving to Arizona and then to Santiago de Chile in uh, 1949. In 1954, she went to the University of New Mexico as a journalism major for her undergrad and began to write short stories. She married three times over the next decade, and by this time she's Lucia, to sculptor Paul Sutman, jazz pianist Race Newton and jazz saxophonist Buddy Berlin. And she gave birth to her four sons, who were Mark, Jeff, David and Daniel, who have been so supportive and helpful with my research. It's great that you've been able to ask questions directly from her family. Yes, it's been amazing, honestly. I've interviewed Jeff and David several times in person and via email, and Daniel also via email, and they've just been wonderful. I'm a, re I'm a very lucky biographer in that sense, um, in many senses. And yes, and then in the 50s and 60s, Berlin moved 16 times. She really was very peripatetic across New Mexico, New York and Mexico. And in the meantime, she befriended countercultural luminaries, including Robert Creeley, Ed Dorn, Denise Levitoff, and many other poets of the Black Mountain and Beats traditions. And she published her first short story in Saul Bellow's magazine, The Noble Savage. She had a really hard time in the next couple of decades. She struggled with alcoholism, while her third husband, Buddy Berlin, struggled with his addiction to heroin, and they eventually divorced. In 1971, Berlin moved her sons to the San Francisco Bay Area, where she supported them by working as a housekeeper, receptionist, school teacher, switchboard operator, and emergency room nurse. 
She started writing again during this period and published her first chapbook in 1977 and her first collection of short stories in 1981. Wow, what a life. She also won several awards, didn't she? She did, yes. And I'm so pleased. Towards the end of her life in 1991, she won an American Book Award for her fourth collection, Homesick. And then in 1994, her dear friend Ed Dawn, and they really have such a a wonderful friendship, you know, which spanned decades. And she had a wonderful friendship with his wife, Jennifer Dunbar Dawn, too. But the Dawns found her a position teaching creative writing at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And by 2000, um, unfortunately, her health had declined following a long battle with lung cancer. So she moved back to California and lived with her youngest son, Daniel, in Los Angeles until she died in 2004. Wow, so much to discuss. The short story we're focusing on today is Dear Conchi, which is collected in A Manual for Cleaning Women. And the story takes the form of a series of unsigned letters from a Miss Gray, newly arrived at the University of New Mexico, to a friend nicknamed Conchi at home in Chile. And the letters recount the experiences of this newcomer to 1950s New Mexico, with insights into her lessons, loves, family relationships and ambitions to be a writer. And through the letters, we get a kind of Janice Point portrait of her former and new home. And, you know, when we were prepping for this discussion, you mentioned that letter writing shaped Berlin's craft. I see formal and technical similarities between a letter and story. There's the conventional limit in terms of length, which makes a delimited space where potentially tricky subjects can be raised or addressed. A certain distance and intimacy in the transmission and reception of the text. And a necessary positioning or repositioning of the writing self along with an imaginative projecting into the other, the recipient or reader. I'd love to know more about the importance of letter writing for Berlin, how it helped develop her craft. I am so glad that you mentioned this um, because letter writing really was instrumental in Berlin's development of her voice, I think remarkably so. Starting in the mid-1950s, so when she was in New Mexico for university, she became a prolific and supremely talented correspondent such a pleasure to read her letters. And that practice would continue for the rest of her life. Particularly important was her correspondence with Dawn and Creeley, so these two poets of the kind of Black Mountain tradition, during the late 1950s and early 1960s, uh, when she was writing and redrafting her first short stories and a novel that she later abandoned. She told Dawn and Creeley anecdotes about her life and travels, and she also discussed her thoughts on writing, music, and things like Charles Olson's projective verse, which, of course, is very much based on speech and breath. Creeley and Dawn were huge admirers of Olson and followed his lead in their poetry using this page as a sort of canvas, and Berlin does that too in her correspondence in a way that informs her later work. I'll give you an example. In 1959, Berlin wrote a wonderful letter to Dawn, who she had this very long friendship with, about her journey to New York with her then husband, her second husband, Race Newton, the jazz pianist, and her two young sons from her first marriage. So that's uh, Mark and Jeff. She says, quote, this is the thing about the East. You can't change your mind. You can't screw up. You can't stop. And then she indents and centers the next bit on the page, like a poem or a road sign. And she writes, no stopping in capitals. She carries on with this technique, quoting signs in, quote, the rearview mirror that said, and then she goes back into all caps, turn back, now you are going the wrong direction. Berlin went on to use that trick of capitalization and of using the page as a canvas, like Olsen, in some of her most successful short stories, like A Manual for Cleaning Women, which of course is perhaps one of her best known. In that story, a housekeeper finds notes lying around one of the houses she cleans. So, quote, 10 a.m. nausea, in caps, on a piece of paper on the mantel, and then diarrhea, in caps, on the drain board. 
Dizzy poor memory on the kitchen stove. She capitalizes the ailments, so these quoted words, just like she did with the road signs in her early letters. So this technique is sort of a linguistic collage, I think. And it's a skill that Berlin honed in her correspondence. You can see it in Dear Conchi too, the story we're discussing here, in the way that she explicitly plays with the letter form and she indents the different missives to her friend and plays with ellipses. And you mentioned that Berlin stopped writing to her real-life friend uh, Consuelo Capellini, nicknamed Conchi. So it's fascinating that she still drew artistically on this friendship. And the voice seems very, very different from a real Berlin letter dated 1954, collected in Welcome Home, where she jokingly addresses a friend Lorna as a no-good wenchy slut. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so Lorna Gladstone, Conchi Capellini and Berlin were all part of the same group of friends at Santiago College, which was their elite private girls school in Chile. So when they were when they were teenagers and they use this funny and flippant language with one another. I've interviewed both Conchi and Lorna and they have really fond memories of Berlin and of that time. But it's so sad that Berlin and Conchi lost touch, I think. Um, Conchi stayed in Santiago de Chile and married the young man she'd started, quote, going steady with, according to that letter to Lorna, um, shortly after Berlin moved to Albuquerque. Whereas Berlin started going to jazz clubs, she made friends with these bebop musicians and countercultural poets, and she made her way into new circles. This is pure speculation, which of course is an occupational hazard for a biographer. But I do wonder whether Berlin might have felt that Conchi might not understand her new life. By the mid-1960s, when her marriage with her third husband was in trouble and her alcoholism was really starting to take hold, Berlin had stopped writing to Conchi altogether, and her letters to Lorna were full of lies, actually, about how well she was doing. We've all told our friends that we're all right, when perhaps we're not. And yes, I suppose she didn't want her old friends to worry about her, or perhaps she felt that they wouldn't be able to relate, or maybe she was a bit ashamed. But in any case, it's really interesting that she wrote Dear Conchi in the early 1990s, so a really long time after she'd lost touch with her friend. The narrator's love for this fictional Conchi is clear in the story, and a spirit of nostalgia pervades it, as though Berlin were trying to resurrect and inhabit a closeness that she yearned for. She travelled so much and moved between socioeconomic classes to such an extent that by 1993, when Dear Conchi was first published in The New Censorship, Berlin really wasn't in touch with anyone who had known her as a girl in those glittering Santiago circles. So perhaps in writing Dear Conchi, she was seeking to reclaim a part of herself. Mm, that's such a mind blow. That kind of makes her both um, her own writer and reader in a way. And it's such yeah. a beautiful way for Berlin to connect with Conchi too. Yes, and she really missed her after they lost touch. And Conchi told me that she missed her too. I was really moved when I interviewed Conchi and she told me about this. I think it's such a shame that Berlin died before they could reconnect. I'm interested in whether this use of the first person in this story differs from other stories. I mean, what the letter form has to offer over other first person narratives. Well, that's a really good question. In terms of Berlin's actual correspondence and her stories, there's a blur. Throughout the 1970s, for example, she often wrote to Ed Dorn and Jennifer Dunbar-Dorn about her jobs as a hospital switchboard operator and emergency room nurse. Although Berlin never kept copies of her letters, some of these anecdotes reappear almost verbatim in her short stories about hospitals like Emergency Room Notebook and My Jockey. So in other words, the first person of Berlin's actual correspondence found its way into the fictional first person of her stories, as though both letters and stories were improvisations on the theme of her life as in the bebop jazz that she loved so much. The difference with Dear Conchi, of course, is that the first person is explicitly epistolary and that it reaches far back into Berlin's past in terms of setting and time period. Dear Conchi is explicitly constructed, 
crafted, you know, um, but it gives this wonderful illusion of immediacy and artlessness, something Berlin often sought to evoke with the apparent kind of casualness or gossipiness of her narrator's voices, even when they're not presented as letters. And I, in this story, quite intentional, not forced, but almost forcing, it seemed to want to explain things. And the explaining seemed intended for the dominant profile in that newer environment. So I guess primarily a, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, um, like a way of narrating a certain strangeness in terms of identity, but also of making a more waspish reader see their own strangeness, commenting on the wrongness of the writer's clothes, for example, so as to tell the, quote, horribleness of the local girl's circular skirts and blue jeans. Um, this links in my mind with something Nina highlighted in her paper at the the 2022 European Network for Short Fiction Research Conference. And that's Berlin's bilinguality and bi or multiculturality. Thank you so much for mentioning that. It was a wonderful conference. Yes, and Berlin's multiculturality and her education in Chilean and Spanish literature, which was extensive. I mean, that was her education and um, is too often overlooked. She's absolutely trying to make sense of the cultural disjunct between Santiago and Albuquerque in Dear Conchi, something that clearly stayed with her for decades, from the early 1950s when she experienced that transition, through to the early 1990s when she published the story, and no doubt beyond. Um, I think she always felt like an outsider in the States, but in Chile too, because you know she was born in Alaska. She was American. Um, she was often outside of language, outside of social norms, trying to make sense of them and interrogating them in her stories. I think this made her hyper aware of so many things that we might take for granted. So, for example, the title of her early story, Angel's Laundromat, doesn't actually originally contain an apostrophe, even though the laundromat is run by someone called Angel. The apostrophe is added in her posthumous publications. In the versions she published during her life, there's no apostrophe. And after extensive sleuthing through these old issues of the Albuquerque Journal newspaper, I came across a mention of an Angel's Laundromat on 4th Street which is where the laundromat is in the story, um, that makes the same mistake in the punctuation of its name. So it seems highly likely to me that Berlin lifted that mispunctuation straight from reality. She was supremely attentive to that kind of detail. That's so interesting. You know, which version do you go with in the end? And I suppose you have to go with the author, even though it's very tempting to put an apostrophe after angels, isn't it? Or in angels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you mentioned about the outsider status as you say, it does allow us to see in the stories to unpick the kind of contradictory discourses that are at play in them. So in Dear Conchie, as Sonia mentions, when the narrator starts college, her clothes are all wrong and someone even tells her that. And clothes are in themselves a system of cultural signs and signifiers. So to get them wrong unintentionally is very much like speaking the wrong language. Also, she can't get used to the food People interpret her reserve as arrogance or aloofness, but she ascribes it to nationality, to the fact that, well, she says she is from Chile, as you say, she's actually from Alaska, but she's gone to the college from Chile. Then she goes on to talk about the hierarchical nature of the college. Some sororities are better than others, richer. And then, of course, the religious elements come in with the references to Catholicism and to Billy Graham. And the reason people don't seem to like her young lover, Joe, is because he is vulgar and common, which may be down to class. 
Absolutely. And that's a theme that really continues throughout Berlin's work and emerges from her earlier work too. And it's also because he's Mexican. Berlin based Joe on her first love, who was a real young man named Lou Suarez, who worked with her on UNM's student newspaper, The Lobo. Berlin's parents disapproved because he was Mexican and actually they disowned Berlin's sister after she married a Mexican politician. We see that at the end when the parents meet Joe, but they can't take to him. And the mother actually says terrible things to her about her being kind of a whore and shaming the family. Whereas sex seems to be a wholly positive experience for the narrator of this story. But her father calls it statutory rape. And at the end, it's clear that she's torn apart by these conflicting discourses of class, gender, race, religion that just can't be resolved. That made me want to contrast it with the story Sex Appeal. Yes. What in particular draws you to Sex Appeal? That's such a fun one. And another really interesting transformation of Berlin's reality in her fiction. Well, yes, I mean, it is fun, but it also shows a deliberate construction of a certain aspect of femininity, which ties in, in my mind, at least, to some of the references in Dear Conchie. So in this story, the narrator, who's only 11, is instructed into acquiring sex appeal by her older, gorgeous cousin, who's hoping to become a kind of Hollywood starlet. None of it comes naturally. You can really see that she's on the cusp of childhood and womanhood when she goes up the stairs and rehearses coming down them. She's learning sex appeal, the discourse of this particular femininity, as one might learn a new language. And while she's still trying to appropriate this new language or discourse, her cousin's friend, the son of a millionaire father, makes inappropriate moves towards her. I think we do read them as inappropriate, although it could be argued that they are appropriate to the inappropriate discourse in which the young girl is participating. She's not ready for this and just doesn't know how to respond. So I think in both stories, while sex appeal is kind of lighter and funny in parts, there's an illustration of the destructive potential of these cultural discourses. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. And I also love um, these stories for the way that they deliberately draw attention to a construction of self, as you say. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's exactly what Berlin was doing with her writing process. She was taking these past experiences, places she'd lived and people she'd met and dressing them up and transforming them, really transforming them for effect into her fiction. I think people too often overlook that crafted, constructed, fictional aspect of her writing by subsuming it retrospectively into the category of autofiction. And this term that wasn't even coined until 1977, so a good 20 years after, more than 20 years after Berlin started writing. I mean, sure, Berlin drew on her life in her work, but she also remade it or made it up. Not unlike someone experimenting with eyeliner, lipstick or even stage makeup. It's an art. That's a great comparison. And one of the aspects of her work I'm interested in is the role of memory in her stories and the links between memory and imagination, which is one of the key themes of your article, I think, into the short autofictions of Eve Babbitt's Lucia Berlin and Bette Howland. I think, Nina, texts that dissolve the boundary between life and art, and it's it's quite hard to pinpoint the distinction sometimes, isn't it? You say that autofiction asks whether nonfiction really tells the truth and whether fiction is truly invented. And this might be key to a critical appraisal of Berlin's work. In her foreword to this volume, Lydia Davis quotes Berlin as saying, somehow there must occur the most imperceptible alteration of reality, a transformation, not a distortion of the truth. 
I love I love how Davis describes that, the, the use of that word transformation. And I find the lens of jazz really helpful in thinking about this. I think I mentioned before, especially since Berlin was so immersed in music through her husbands and friends from the mid-1950s onwards. I think that for her, life was the kind of theme and short stories were a series of improvisations on that theme. And so were letters. I wrote about this, as you say, in my article in Critique Studies in Contemporary Fiction. Because Berlin's improvisations are short stories, they often return to the same experiential terrain and they each reinterpret it in this often contradictory ways. So the gaps between different versions of similar events in Berlin's different stories remind us that at the end of the day, they are fiction. And yet she tricked her readers into approaching them as fact, for instance, by using the names of real people. So some of her protagonists, as you know, were called Lucia or Lucia or Lou or Laura. I mean, that's absolutely right. I think Welcome Home in the same collection is the one that particularly reminded me of a writer I loved as a child, Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote the Little House on the Prairie series about her pioneering family in 19th century America. And again, the interesting question for me is about memory and imagination. So Laura Ingalls Wilder began writing when she was about the same age as I am now. And I can't remember my childhood self in that vivid way that she apparently remembers hers. She leaves out several things, however, and the kind of detail we find in Welcome Home, where someone actually freezes to death over the winter. So she leaves out the kind of detail about those pioneers who don't make it. And crucially, for which she has been criticised, she's apparently unaware of many factors affecting the indigenous people they encounter, the Native Americans. But also, even in her writing about her family, she leaves out painful subjects such as the death of her baby brother, the process of her sister Mary's blindness, the tensions between her parents, etc. Probably because they are books for children. I remember reading them initially as fiction when I was seven or eight. Then it slowly dawned on me that they were autofiction about her own life. And I began thinking of them more as factual. And then later I revisited them as an adult and saw them as shaped fictions again. But I think they've been presented as real historical accounts that formed a tribute to America's amazing pioneers. And they were read as such by generations of US children. I think the link I'm making here is that it would be easy to read Berlin's work as unmediated factual accounts or memoir because of the use of the first person and the social realism. And because sometimes, as you say in your article, the narrator shares Berlin's name without seeing the artistry, the shaping and the deliberate creation of that illusion. The letter form especially refers us to moments of lived experience that we are inclined to read as true. Because why would you lie in a letter to a friend? I know I'm being simplistic here because letters are an art form in themselves, but they're often not read as such. Yes, I think that's spot on. Here's to reading the letter as an art form. And I think Berlin would have loved that we're having these discussions, recognising and celebrating her artistic choices rather than reducing her fiction to her biography, which I think unfortunately happens too often, especially with female writers. In, in terms of style, I noticed that Berlin often indulges in prodigious and glorious lists with each item linked by a conjunction. So Welcome Home has a letter from 1959 where she says, they work so hard and so easily and mulch and sow and reap and can and prune and graft and darn and bake and plant. Mm-hmm. And everything is so cyclical and ordered and nice. But in Dear Conchi, Berlin limits herself to a relatively tame um, Indian pots and rugs and modern art. And 
De Conchi feels in this respect perhaps a bit like a, a writer behaving, uh, conforming to ideas about how a story should be told, perhaps artfully so. And there are references to the letter writing protagonist's ambitions to be a writer. And my heart squeezed at a line of fictional feedback delivered by a man corresponding to the stereotype of a literary authority. And she describes him as looking like a handsome author on a book jacket with a pipe and patches on his elbows. And this person describes her work as an acceptable little story. And she gets conflicting, but perhaps more helpful feedback from her boyfriend, Joe, who has a more counterculture profile and who describes her story as precious and false. With all this masculine judgment, I couldn't help thinking about the broader sweep of literary history that, as you say, tended to, to sideline women's stories and about how long Berlin's talent was overlooked and the, the difficulty for a minority voice to negotiate mainstream expectations and norms. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as I said, I'm so happy that she won the American Book Award and found this teaching position at the end of her life. But she deserved more recognition. And it's a shame that she's not alive to see herself celebrated now. She found that a real challenge throughout her career. And especially when she was beginning to write in the 1950s, she saw the poet Robert Creeley as a mentor. And yet he told her literally to focus on her wifely duties instead of writing. <laughs> Ed Dawn, on the other hand, who I've mentioned several times, because I just love his friendship with Berlin, and, and I love his work too. Um, he was immensely supportive of Berlin throughout their decades-long friendship. He introduced her to every single one of her editors and publishers. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And she published with quite a few different independent presses of the Bay Area. And he got her the job with his wife, Jennifer Dunbar-Dawn, got her the job teaching writing at the University of Colorado, um, where he worked. He was a tireless champion of her work. And yet he features in university courses on the American counterculture and Berlin doesn't. The sexism of the literary canon persists. And I'm sure that a huge part of the reason why Berlin isn't better known today is that she's been left out of lists of countercultural writers, almost all of whom are men. And she's been miscategorized and thought of as part of this tradition of the 80s, this kind of dirty realist tradition. So I'm glad we're putting her back in the place that she really emerged from. Yeah, important work. And the fact that Berlin includes that line, an acceptable little story in De Conchi, made me think that she may have appropriated it in a powerful way and gained an ironic distance from such patronising appreciations of someone's work. I mistrust myself, back to that tangled question of fiction versus reality. And Berlin seems to grapple with this too in De Conchi, considering how to make a story true, how to craft a story that works through techniques such as taking out adjectives, but also by digging deep to inject emotional authenticity. I love the line, it doesn't bother me. Of course it bothers me. Yes. I love that Berlin uses her work to carve out this space where bothness, one thing and its opposite, can be at home. I think that's a really good point. Part of the vitality of the style seems to me to come from this acceptance of contradictions and variables without aiming necessarily to create a consistent or cohesive narrative. And maybe the letter writing form contributes to that. I mean, it's interesting that we don't hear back from Dear Conchie. The letters are all in the narrator's voice. Why do you think that is? Oh, that's so true. And like most short story writers, I think Berlin was fascinated by deletion, by omission, by gaps. And I suppose the one-sidedness of this fictional correspondence allows the fictional Conchi to breathe, taking shape in those textual absences until she seems almost more real than she might have done if Berlin had given her her own epistolary voice. 
Um, of course, the one-sided letters put us as readers in Conchi's position, drawing us into dialogue with Berlin's narrator and asking us to respond to the anecdotes that she shares. Um, it feels like being let into an extremely intimate conversation between close friends. One of Berlin's cleverest devices here, I think, is to create the sense that we're reading something private, when of course she had always intended this for publication. She transforms us all into Conchi, and we can't help becoming emotionally attached to her narrator as a result. And I sometimes wonder whether those gaps also create a real sense of yearning, which was true to what Berlin might have felt after losing touch with Conchi and so many of her childhood friends. There's a wonderful article by Isabel Chung about grief and fragmentation called What Happens to Writing When We Stop Pretending Anything Makes Sense? Um, addressing tragic events in Hong Kong and cel celebrating fragmentary writing, Chung says that, quote, in those white spaces, I grieve. Perhaps Berlin was grieving for something very different, obviously, her friendship with Conchi, her glamorous adolescence, the promise of her youth, or the promise of youth in general, in these empty spaces where Conchi's letters would otherwise have been. I think that's so true. And I think the sense of yearning extends itself to place as well in her writing. I think, though incomplete, Welcome Home is a really accomplished testament to Berlin's brilliance as a writer of place. In one story, she conjures the 18 places she's ever lived in a series of micro lists of what was wrong with each of them. So that's the trouble with all the houses I've ever lived in. And it's a showcase of few words well chosen. I guess there's a stock taking aspect to place writing, a way of inventorying and negotiating different worlds. Yes, definitely. Place is essential to Berlin's writing. As you say, she's brilliant at listing and stock taking. And this takes us back to her knack for linguistic collage, <laughs> which I love to talk about. Um, she includes fragments of text from the places she moves through in her stories. For instance, in Angel's Laundromat, where she writes, quote, the campus laundry has a sign, like most laundries do, and then in capital letters, positively no dying. I drove all over town with a green, <laughs> with a green bedspread until I came to Angel's with his yellow sign, capital letters, you can die here anytime. That second die is misspelled, so like death instead of like dying a blanket. Um, another clue of that, the lack of apostrophe in Angel's laundromat was intentional. Berlin noticed and enjoyed these slippages. And another thing I got from your article, the linking of the short story's inclination to episodic structure and the provisionality of life. And you share this idea of short autofiction being especially suited to the representation of loss. And you quote Lydia Davis, who describes fragmentary texts as the most credible expression of grief, with the grief alive in, in the silences between fragments. In Dear Conchi, the narrator talks a lot about sex and the plot seems to present a love story. But loss is also driving the story. There's Chile, an adopted homeland that's far away, a lost conception of the USA as home, since homecoming has revealed the narrator as foreign. And the loss of a lover, a form of parental abandonment, and the, the mother returns to alcohol abuse, and the father and the mother reject the narrator's choice of lover. And then there's this correspondent Conchi who's lost three times over. She's lost in real life, once removed through fiction, and necessarily absent as a correspondent. And the narrator never signs, which makes her a somewhat ghostly presence. I think of that term in English, ghostwriter, and wonder was Berlin ghosting for herself. That's such a great point. <laughs> I love that idea of ghosting for herself. Nini, you yourself are a short and long form fiction writer. Perhaps to close, you'd like to share a favourite writerly lesson gleaned from Berlin's life and works. 
Sure. Well, it's funny because I thought of myself and and was a fiction writer for years before stumbling into writing this PhD in biography. And since then, I've discovered that I love writing nonfiction. So in a really obvious sense, Berlin brought me into a a whole new genre and ironically one that she didn't write herself. So biography, nonfiction. The other main thing I've learned from Berlin is to keep going, keep working, keep redrafting and submitting and submitting and submitting through however many rejections. Having read her correspondence, you know, she was rejected many times by magazines and publishers. She didn't start publishing in earnest until her 40s and she wasn't celebrated to the extent she deserved, as we've said, until long after her death. But she didn't give up. And I, you know, as I've said, I just wish that she were here to see how beloved and admired she now is by readers all around the world. Yes, it's sad, but encouraging at the same time. In her foreword, Lydia Davis says that she's always had faith that the best writers will rise to the top like cream sooner or later and become exactly as well known as they should be, which is an encouraging thought that in spite of all trends and prejudices, great writing will eventually get the attention it deserves. She says that this collection, A Manual for Cleaning Ladies, will get Berlin that attention, and I really hope so, since it's a wonderful collection and one really worth reading. We hope you feel inspired to read it now after our discussion. So once again, thank you for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast. And thanks especially to our guest, Nina Ellis, for sharing her insights into Berlin's work. Keep your eyes open for Nina's biography of Lucia Berlin, Looking for Lucia, which will be released by Farah Strauss and Juro in 2025. And do keep your eyes and ears open for our next podcast. We have many great short stories to cover. Until then, goodbye from Nina and Sonia and from me. Thank you so much and goodbye. Thank you. A bientôt.